the giant thinkers giant thinkers podcast hey guys welcome to the show i'm ram castillo and in this podcast i'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers creatives and giant thinkers Hello Giants, Ram here. It's lovely to have your company. This is episode number 46. Our guest is the co-founder and chief experience officer at Academy XI. They teach groups and individuals in the areas of design and tech, but with a unique positioning and offering. They specialize in teaching newly emerging disciplines such as virtual reality design, augmented reality design, service design, and of course, UX design as well. As you can imagine, this gets me going because they aim to address the upcoming skills gap in technology and give students the practical skills to pursue new career paths. Actually, some exciting news that's come out very recently is that Academy XI secured $2.25 million in a Series A round funding, and they've only been around for a little over a year. Very impressive growth. Now back to our guest, he started his design career in 1998. He's helped iconic brands, eager startups, and a broad range of organizations improve their ability to create long-lasting relationships with their customers by combining his belief in human-centered design, research, and collaboration. Some of the topics we spoke about include the danger of assumption, advice to anyone creating a product, service, or a brand, designing value systems, the process of elimination when solving complex problems, his slide share presentation titled The Future of Everything, which has been viewed almost 400,000 times, and naturally we spoke about where he feels design is heading. This is both for those that are familiar and unfamiliar with user experience design as we go broad and deep, so there's something everyone will walk away with. Now, before we begin, I'd like to take this opportunity to give a special shout out to my good friend, Eric Lachey and his creative agency, Carbon Stories. You may have seen me upload some videos on YouTube and Facebook in the last couple of months with a new series titled Ram on Tour, which is a vlog style documentation of my last USA speaking tour. These videos have been carefully edited and put together by Eric and his team at Carbon Stories. They are master storytellers who take pictures, make videos, and pretty much anything you can think of with a camera and computer. And here's the kicker. They're in their early 20s. Eric started the company with his friends, Vincent McIntosh and Matt Halling, right after high school in 2015. They now have over 20 creators working collaboratively and are based in Grand Rapids, West Michigan. I love these guys. Check out their work at carbonstories.us. I'll put a link with the blog post of this episode. And if you need any video work or photography, send them a message. Once again, their website is carbonstories.us. All right, let's get into it. I present to you the bright, passionate, and down-to-earth Shabel Zita. Shabel Zita, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast, my friend. How are you? 
Great, Ram. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, be part of your journey and and your circle. Uh, you know, we connected through Vince Frost, who's also been on the show. Uh, we both spoke at Defrost, which is amazing, uh, two years ago, and I've been following your journey, so it's been it's been amazing. So let's dive straight in. I have an icebreaker question for you. Go for it. Uh, what would be your number one favorite city and why? Yeah, oh, it, without a doubt, it's Barcelona. Um, and it was interesting. The first time I went there uh, must have been about 13, 14 years ago. Um, I'd, I'd been traveling for a little bit and uh, got out. I came, like, had flown into Barcelona and got the train into the city. And I remember um, as I stepped out from the train station into La Rambles, uh, which is the main uh, strip there, it was a, a, a crazy sense of deja vu. It was almost overwhelming um, how it felt like I had arrived home. Um, and it was in an interesting place, the city itself, so alive, so vibrant. Um, and it seems that doesn't matter which direction you walk into, uh, there's always something incredible to, to explore. Uh, and of course, like there's no question about Spanish food, Spanish lifestyle. You know, I love a siesta. Yeah, they do siesta. So it feels, it really feels like a, a very much a personally aligned city. Um, apart from the fact that it's beautiful, beautiful to look at, it's beautiful people, beautiful everything uh, around there. And met some, uh, some fantastic people there as well. I couldn't agree more, mate. I went to Europe for the first time in 2009. Barcelona, hands down, was my favorite city as well. So it's interesting <laughs> you said that. Um, yeah. Love the, the buildings, the you know the architecture, Gaudi's stuff to um, the the craziness of La Rambles. And I guess you got to be there to actually see it and feel it for yourself. But um, it is it is one amazing city and uh, not far from the beaches as well, which is good. Yeah. Now, where would you say your expertise lies? Oh yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, that that um, it's changed over over the years, and um, you know, I've been in the game, digital game, particularly in design, for um, eighteen, nineteen years now. Um, and that, that was before you know we set up Academy XI. And um, over the years, like my my expertise definitely has changed from being a designer um, and a, you know, what you would call a good empathetic type of uh, UX designer. And in more recent years, and this is as a result of teaching, I really feel that my expertise these days has um, really shifted into into facilitation and coaching, um, and coaching not not in terms of lifestyle coaching, but trying to get the best out of people when I am facilitating. Um, so, in terms of being able to present, you know, I used to be quite a shy person and um, terrified of being in front of people, and these days it's shifted just um, just on seeing what value education brings. And for me, it, it really is about um, it, it, facilitation is probably my strongest thing right now. Mm, mm, very cool. Um, now, getting to that point, uh, you must have you know, had a uh, very curious childhood. Um, how, how was your childhood and how did you grow up? Yeah, childhood was really interesting. Like, you know, it, it, depending on what um, day of the week it is and the stages of my life, like these days I, I have the new sense of appreciation for what my childhood was. Um, and I grew up in the northwest of Sydney, in a suburb called Penang Hills. My, my parents migrated here from Lebanon in the uh, early 60s. And, you know, Dad, in fact, um, he moved here in 1959 for a couple of years, um, did some work, went back to Lebanon, married my mum. And they came back and started a family. And um, you know, they're, they're still alive, thankfully. And um, the area we grew up in was really at that point, was the fringe of Sydney suburbs. Um, so beyond where we grew up was all bushland. So our, our lifestyle was pretty simple. Like it was a really humble 
working class uh, upbringing. And the day to day was, you know, if we weren't at school, we were out in the street playing. We grew up in a cul-de-sac. Um, and having the bushland really close was fantastic because it gave us an opportunity to to explore nature. So, so really, it was it was quite a simple, um, pretty lovely upbringing. Uh, nothing dramatic ever happened, you know, apart from sort of the typical fights as kids with your neighbours and um, skateboarding accidents. You know, I was always a terrible <laughs> skateboarder and still am. So, um, so it was just that that sort of really simple upbringing. And and how did you get interested in? design, creativity, um, art, all that sort of side of things? Yeah, that, there's a whole series of um, accidents. You know, like I've been a serial entrepreneur. My background uh, when I finished school, I actually studied hotel and catering management. Um, and soon after I finished, I went into a business with a friend of mine, which was a deli. And we did, you know, we did quite well out of it. Um, through that was my first uh, clue. Like when I look back at it, there was a whole lot of clues as to the things that I did. And hospitality for me was um, my love for people and my um, desire to interact with people and learn about them. So for me, um, it was a natural extension to go from uh, doing hospitality, strangely, um, to setting up businesses. I had a quite a lot of checkered, um, sort of really distant, what, what seemed like dis- uh, disconnected experiences through my life in setting up businesses. But design was a really key thing because it was – an interesting thing around um, around design itself and how you could engage people through design, uh, and that was the interesting bit. And having had hospitality experiences, is um, was also like the deli was a great example of using food as a way to engage with people, but also um, a mechanism for me to educate people about what I'd learned about you know little farmhouses that we were buying cheese from and uh, things like that. So it was always a, a sharing of knowledge and change. Of food and and also having that Lebanese background, which was very much about being hospitable and always having people around and always having food around, it was an interesting. Um, uh, everything was an interesting leading into the next thing, and so when I look back at it, like food was actually a very very natural part of my design experience, and certainly a very natural part of my education experience. So because it was always uh, having that that two way conversation, learning about each other, and continually exchanging information. Mm, yeah, this is uh, this is good stuff. Uh, it reminds me of when uh, we had on uh, Kevin Lee, the global head of design for Visa, on the show, and he really spoke about um, being a good designer and having um, a lot of experiences under your belt. And and I think when we talk about um, UX design, which we, I'd love to dive into next, um, we really tap into the human, deep human experience, the interactions within it, um, whatever exchange it is, whether it's meat or otherwise, I think um, the fundamental truths are going to be the same. And you've spoken a lot about this type of stuff. Um, how would you define UX design for the everyday person? Mm, yeah, UX design is it's an interesting thing. I mean, traditionally, like when we look at it currently in the current marketplace, it's about designing uh, digital products that are useful in terms of the fact that they solve a problem um, and usable uh, so that people can use it and um, desirable. I mean, it's become a bit of a cliche and desirable in that people actually want to use it. So so from a, um, a design perspective, what UX designers do is typically design uh, digital products that um, are solving problems and are easy to use. Um, and so, so it's really more than one job. And that's the interesting bit trying to explain it to people is that um, to be a good UX designer, you've, you've got to be a great researcher, a great facilitator, and a great conceptor in terms of coming up with ideas. So, 
So it's it's an interesting field in that it, it um, requires multiple disciplines in the one field, even though it's, it's called UX design. Um, and a great UX designer really um, has empathy um, and has the capacity to explain things. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you've got to be a great visual designer, um, although a lot of great visual designers do become UXs. It's um, it's an interesting uh, thing around designing products that work, and that, that's the simplest um, simplest way of putting it. Uh, putting it into a nutshell is is designing digital products that work. Yeah, and it's uh, it is certainly a crossover into so many other roles, isn't it? Like you start to think about strategy, you start to think about um, leadership, you start to think about um, uh, all the. I guess the the services and the ecosystems involved around a user's experience, which effectively is a human experience. Um, so really, it's it's limitless, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're starting to see, and it's interesting that you say strategy as well, because uh, more and more it's being taken seriously as a as a strategic design tool. And then when we look at what's happening in the market now uh, with the newer field emerging called service design, um, that takes it up another level um, altogether, which looks at entire business ecosystems. In fact, it's close, I would call it more business design um, anyway. And it's just a really interesting thing when we look at digital products and how um, 10 years ago it was a battle trying to get any sort of budget to do UX design. And these days, it's a battle trying to get people hired because there's not enough people in the world. And it, what it does it really shows how um, serious uh, companies have are taking what UX does. So it really, really does show um, how important UX has become as a discipline um, because, it's yes, it's about designing a digital product, but it's also about where does this product fit in a customer's experience, in, in the customer's context. So, so it's really um, more than just great interface, but how does this interface that sits within a mobile phone or on a computer actually live within a, a person's actual human experience? You know, as you said, it's a human thing. Um, so it's really about understanding more than just the product. It's about understanding the context. Um, and so like, it's really become a strategic thing, like product design, there's no question. Um, and you see this everywhere, like products are getting better and better and better, and uh, customers are demanding better and better and better products. Nobody goes for a product that has a terrible experience, you know. So it's it's become a strategic advantage having having a good UX team. Yeah, and I and I always um, actually advise people to do a UX course, um, whether it's a short course or or not, because as you've just yeah. tapped into there, it's it's contextualizing what you're designing for and around, mm. and and when that. Uh, lens gets pulled back, you know, very, very top view, you actually see that, okay, so we're designing this app for, for, um, you know, maybe health and wellness, but, um, who is that person that we're targeting for and where else do they interact? Not just on, on the online space, but in the real world. Yeah. Um, and then, then you start kind of taking it to that strategic level of going, huh, right. Well, this is going to be a wise decision because the research says this and it's informed by uh, data and I guess uh, uh, patterns and uh, behaviors and all this good stuff. So um, this is this is very useful stuff. Yeah. Now, um, Shabelle, 
when it comes to research, uh, let's dive into this a bit. Um, what's the danger of just assuming, right? Like a lot of people just have this gut feeling and, you know, they start a product and they're all like, oh, no, but I, I think this is right. You know, especially clients, you know, when they say, yeah. um, no, no, but, you know, I, th- I think, I think, dot, dot, dot. What's your take on assuming the danger of it? Yeah, so the danger of any sort of assumption um, is that we end up designing the product for ourselves. So, um, so an assumption only come about because of a past experience or um, or knowledge of my own situation, my own context. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, everyone says this, you are not your customer. Um, so as soon as I start to design a product for myself, I've completely limited uh, any capacity for true creativity. So it just becomes an idea. And true creativity comes from um, understanding what, so I'll keep talking about context because context is everything. So when understanding um, the people who are using your product, um, where they are, so in their context, um, so it's really about understanding real people, real problems, real context. And so as soon as I throw in an assumption, I've pretty much designed it for myself or the people I know in my own network. So I've limited any capacity for understanding and any capacity for for the real gems and uncovering uncovering um, what you call magical moments in design. Um, by saying, oh, my God, this is what's really happening out in the marketplace. So it's a really dangerous um, uh, space. And and often you can, you know, I, I believe that you can get things about 60 70% right, but it's the 40 30% of um, things that you just don't know unless you go out and do research that um, are the moments of magic that you can actually find when you're doing product design. So, yeah, so it's risky. Even small research can find interesting things. Yeah, and and what uh, validation tools then would you uh, use or can share to to people listening on uh, how to, I guess, not assume and and to really uh, find that reasoning or that conclusive um, point of view um, valid? Yeah, so there's so many ways in which you can do it, and um, and one of these things that you're going to keep hearing is it depends. Um, and you'll see this a lot. Even uh, one of the local groups here in Melbourne, um, US gatherings, they've got, they've developed a badge and it's hilarious because it says it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of their, their physical badges that you can get as a member. Um, and, and what that means really is it, depending on how much time you have, how much budget you have and how much access to people you have, uh, there are so many different research techniques. Like last count, we talked about this in class. Well, there's about 40 different types of research. Um, approaches that you can take to get information that you want. But at, at its core, and the most important things that I think any designer should have under under their belt, uh, surveys. So you can get a lot of um, what they call quant- uh, quantitative data. And quantitative means quantity, which is usually numbers and percentages. So, so any statistical type stuff you can find out in surveys. And it's always really good to supplement it with um, things like interviews, one-on-one interviews, um, where you'd give people a series of questions or you'd observe them doing something, which moves us into contextual inquiries. Um, and e- each one of those types of research technique gets um, you get more and more information and more, uh, more sort of uh, valuable insights as you, as you move along from surveys to interviews to contextual inquiries. Now, each one of them, um, they, uh, they, have, um, they can be performed quickly, like uh, online surveys is really quick. Um, interviews is relatively quick, um, takes a bit more time, and contextual inquiries are really deep, um, deeper sort of research techniques where you go and observing people in their actual context. 
Um, and as you move along that scale, it, it takes more time um, and also it becomes a bit more expensive. So, so everything comes down to budget. Um, and but there's also things like you, know, you can do desktop research. So just doing searches on things, looking at forums, uh, joining Facebook groups and asking questions. So there's a whole lot of ways in which you can get um, information relatively quickly and relatively cheaply. Um, and my take is always um, do some research. Any research is better than nothing as a starting point. And then you can actually use your design process to get more research as you start doing testing. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I love how you pointed out just those three, three uh, I guess, pillars in a way, uh, the considerations of time, money, and access to people. Because I think when you explain it to a client or you know anyone that potentially wants to work with a designer or a creative thinker or a strategist, whatever it may be, or even if you want to launch your own product, it's it's really boxing it off and going, oh, how much time do I have? Mm. How much money do I have? And and do I even have access to those people that I uh, that I want to help? Um, that's that's really good. Uh, so let's continue this on to um, let's say someone that wants to create a product or a service or a brand, um, and they're held back by their feelings or needing for it to be perfect, yeah, uh, or as close to perfect as possible. What's uh, What's the danger of, of kind of you know waiting for for it to be perfect before launching? Yeah, it's um, perfection. It's an interesting thing that there's quotes, and I can't remember who wrote it, but um, it was a really good quote because he says, and I'm going to misquote it completely, <laughs> but it's um, perfection is an impossible neurotic state, uh, but in the pursuit of perfection, we can achieve excellence. Mm. So I honestly believe that you can't. Like perfection is an impossible. It is an impossible state because when we look at how quickly things change um, around us, when it comes to technology, our context, our expectations, uh, it's almost impossible to create a product that um, meets every single need. Almost impossible. So the purpose of um, doing products, and it's particularly with this concept of MVP, which is a minimum viable product, is how much of a product can you actually launch to, to the market that solves a specific problem or a subset of a problem? Um, so it's about getting something out, whether it's perfect or not, that can address a problem as quickly as possible. And the idea is that you're continually building upon that because um, even when you're doing that uh, in, a, in a sort of short, sharp uh, release bursts, um, things change in the marketplace. So, so the job as UX designer is actually quite difficult if it's done properly because you've got to be aware of everything all the time. So it's not good enough just to release a product, even if you think you have the most perfect product. Um, it's not going to be perfect in a week's time. That's one of those realities because something will have changed in the world. A new competitor might have come along. Somebody might have been doing something differently or better um, or all of a sudden a new piece of technology has come on board that we have to start thinking about what does the context mean? Because you know you can imagine like 15 years or 10 years ago when most of the design was all about the desktop and all of a sudden uh, mobile phones came about. All of a sudden we have to rethink um, our design approach uh, because it wasn't just the fact that mobile phones were there. Um, what changed was all of a sudden our context changed. So I'd be on the bus or on a tram or on a train um, or sitting in an airport all of a sudden with this little thing in my hand. Um, so it was not good enough to think about the desktop anymore. It's like, well, we have to start thinking about mobility and what does that actually mean in terms of our design? So, yeah, so this where where design has absolutely changed. So, yeah, so perfection is possible and it's about what can you get out to the market as quickly as possible that solves the problem as well as it can. What, what would you say to people who might be overwhelmed by that daunting 
uh, I guess, uh, perspective of needing to constantly evolve and be on your feet um, yeah. in the market and always monitoring and constantly researching that type of thing. Mm. Uh, what would you say to those people who many out there, creative entrepreneurs, especially who are starting something and they feel like they can't keep up. So they feel like they're doing the minimum. Um, what, what advice have you got for that, those types of people? It's actually quite fun. Um, you know, this, this is the whole thing that it's got to be one of those things that people approach any product design knowing that at some point um, it's going to be discarded for something new. Um, and, you know, you look at any of the major products that most people are familiar with or at least use, uh, things like Airbnb, Uber, um, are the ones that come to mind. They're probably the biggest global ones that I can think of right now. Um, when you look at their evolution over the last number of years, they change, they change every few months. And sometimes it's incremental changes. Other times it's massive like wholesale um, interface changes. And the reason that they're great products and great businesses, uh, they're growing in valuation uh, year on year, is because they really focus on the customer experience and they focus on on the usability and the product itself. So it's more than just a set of features. It's um, it's a business. So so anyone who's scared by the concept of um, of continually evolving their product, um, it's 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 don't look at it as a fear. Think of it as a necessity necessity and as part of the business. So everything will evolve, and it's a, it's a mindset. So it's not you release a product and. Let's come back and look at it in 10 years' time. Um, it's a product with a whole set of features in a whole lot of different contexts. So it's about keeping an eye on all of those bits and pieces, um, knowing that um, sometimes it's going to be incremental, other times it's going to be massive. So it's, it's just one of those things that's part and parcel. And the advice is, um, in all I see, is that this is the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's no, there's no other way. So, so it's not like, oh, do this if you want to or... There's nothing soft about it. The reality is that this is reality. So, um, so you always got to keep an eye on what's going on. Mm, yeah, it's very just handy as well when we interact with clients. I suppose those businesses who want to move forward and they potentially are not uh, seeing the complete view of why their business is declining or you know there are there, there's no growth. Um, you know, it's often one of those things where it's it's uh, adapt or die, basically, isn't it? It's just the survival. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, how would you approach designing value systems? Mm, in in what way? Which um, is this? Are you talking about our human value systems, or I guess in a um, let's keep it let's keep it to the business. So, in terms of what, 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 like, I need I need because there's types of value systems. So, so we've got. Our cultural values. Um, so in Australia, we've got a whole series of values that we adhere to. Um, but are you talking about sort of company values or um, product values? Because they're, they're slightly different. Yeah, I guess from a um, okay. So the where I'd be coming from is uh, along this whole line of um, starting a business, starting a service or product, mm. and yes. uh, the point of difference is effectively you, your brand, your personality. Um, yeah. And so when it comes yeah. to whatever that thing is that that person releases, um, the extension of the values that that creator has um, inherited will naturally pass down to to the um, 
the product or the service, but yeah. um, in in that is also the culture of the people that use it and the people that um, is running that product and service. So I guess I guess cultivating those values. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we um, so from my my team, Academy XI. So Ben, who's my um, co-founder, business partner, we we actually spend a lot of time on values and culture, um, and it's a really interesting thing because we've got um, internally what we believe are our values. It's it's really about working together, about collaboration about excellence, um, about about solving problems, about listening to people uh, and taking action. Um, and so for us, it's really about community, about building a supportive tribe and actually using education to um, to um, uh, to create better versions of ourselves um, every single time. And so for us, that, that's our internal thing. So we're continually looking at ways in which we communicate, um, understanding that for us, our, our students and our teachers are our core customers. Um, and, you know, Trying to make it, no, I'm trying to simplify this as much as I can. Um, but they're they're the centre of our um, existence, and team matters as well. So, so we're a service organisation, and and we use our service design process on ourselves all the time. So we look at at the customer experience, which is students, teachers, and all the different touch points um, and the different ways in which a customer interacts with us. Everything from say um, from the first time they see something online, or they've attended an event or a boot camp. Um, right through to becoming a student to then hopefully one day becoming a teacher. Um, so for us, our values are really um, reflected in what we actually do day to day. They're reflected in our products as well, which is our products being our education courses. Um, and then also our brand stamp. So for us, we look at a person and the personal responsibility that we all have um, to make a positive change in the world. And for us, like you know, we, we use this thing, change the world, which on the surface seems like a cliche. But um, but for us, our values are about changing the world through education, and and we actually do that. So we live through it. And even the brand stamp itself, XI, is um, it, it's a it's a play on on what it is that we believe about ourselves. Um, and for us, personal responsibility is everything. So we can we can complain about the world um, all well and good, but what are we going to do about changing it? So X in uh, mass is a variable. Um, so uh, when we look at the variables, so there's anything in the world that I want to change. And I, the way that it's designed, I um, is the thing that um, to the power of I. So X to the power of I means that I can actually fundamentally change anything in the world if I apply myself to it. Um, so for us, that, that's that's to answer your question from a values perspective. We spend a lot of time on um, massaging our core values, and we we, ref, we reflect on it quite frequently. And it might be unusual for companies; I'm not sure um, to be doing so, but. But our internal values are directly reflected outside, um, and it's the same in terms of how we attract a particular type of student and a particular type of teacher, and also what we expect from them. So we have um, we have codes of conduct and how we expect to work with each other, um, and it's real. So we we live and breathe it. So it's not just a set of uh, great fantastic words on a wall. Um, it's for us. It's how do we actually operate and how do we live and breathe the values that represent us, which in turn um, brings our what we call our tribe together. And you would do the same uh, for clients, uh, I, I suppose, yeah. with uh, with with them. Yeah. You know, I guess there's a lot of sometimes uh, chefs in the kitchen. Totally, and, and that's funny because if you say that, because in some of the training that we've delivered in the last few months, we actually. Um, now do uh, this thing called the vision session, which is a product or or a service vision session. 
And part of it is actually about getting real. So we get people to get in there and get really reflective about themselves and their role um, in the organization. And um, it, it's a pretty powerful uh, technique in terms of what comes of it is that we start to realize that most people are going for the same thing, even though they've never articulated it. Um, and it's also an opportunity to give um, people a voice to express what they actually want from a personal level from being within an organization or working on a product design or, or say, working in a service, in a newly imagined service experience. So it gives, uh, it gives the participants um, a, an opportunity to become aligned and be an opportunity to express at an individual level uh, what it is for themselves that they, they want to achieve. And, and I, I encourage people to get really selfish in these vision sessions to say, okay, like you want something, it might be money, it might be recognition, it might be a promotion, whatever it is, start to get real and start to express what it is that you actually want um, because it's in that expression that things can start to shift. Yeah, that's very powerful stuff. Um, I can... I can see so much benefit in in that and uh, the uh, the fun in that as well. I guess um, is there a project that comes to mind that has exercised probability and the process of elimination mm-hmm. to solve or improve a, a complex problem? Hmm. One one that I've worked on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there a yeah? What project that comes to mind for you um, where where you kind of can you know you can take us on that journey as well where you've gone all right so we can eliminate these things yeah. and it's clear that uh what was once complex is is now quite clear for us mm, yeah so interesting if i can get reflective as well about um academy xi um you know we're, we're in this amazing space of education and um being our focus being on emerging design and tech disciplines we have so many requests and um opportunities to uh, bulk out our course offering. We could we could teach so many different um, uh, courses, but we choose to focus on uh, a few right now, and there's a reason for that. Um, part of it is about focus, um, and part of it is about getting known to be the best at a particular group of disciplines. And so for us, it was an interesting thing that um, we, a few months ago, it was just like when things were really warming up and we were just starting to get a lot of, um, inbound inquiries and um, a lot of requests to do X, Y, Z, um, we had to actually stop and say, okay, who are we? Um, what are we doing? Um, what does this product mean um, to us as a company? Is it, Are there other people doing a better job of it or are there, like a, are there a thousand players out there? So for us, it's like really about making sure that everything that we do has meaning and and has a positive outcome, A, for us, you know, as a team, and also for, uh, for the people coming in. So that's an interesting one because we have to do that quite frequently. Um, and every now and again, you get an opportunity to think, wow, this is so, could be so lucrative. Um, and the most difficult thing is actually saying uh, thank you, but it's not our um, area of expertise right now. Even though we could, we could do it, we could um, easily somehow do it. Um, it it's an interesting thing, um, the power of saying no. Um, and being grateful for it, but also saying, no, this is not um, us. Mm. You know, so does that answer it? Yeah, it does actually. It, uh, it does because the process of elimination from, from what I gather um, is that you went back to your intentions, which is yeah. who are we and, and what value do we want to bring to the world? Um, and I'm glad that you really pointed that out because you also included asking what are, what other players are in the market and 
who's doing it really well already. Um, I think that's so important. Um, any other questions like that come to mind when you're, when you're going through that elimination process or, or I guess yeah, curation? Yeah, it's um, when we have to do that, it's about looking at the team, the structure, what we're currently doing. Is it going to water down an effort somewhere else? By If we introduce something new, um, there's always going to be an impact, whether it's a good impact or a, or a detrimental impact. We have to look at what the impacts are going to be. So say we introduce a, a new course tomorrow. Um, what we have to think about is what does that mean to the student experience team? All of a sudden, they've got another uh, thing that they have to uh, process. Uh, what does that mean to our room scheduling because all of a sudden we might have to sacrifice one thing or move something around or or perhaps place a course on a night that is not ideal like friday nights nobody wants to work on a friday night we know that so so for us it's like what's the impact of doing something new it's more than just does it fit our um our core offering it's also what is the impact on the team what is the impact on our scheduling on the space um it's classic service design stuff so you know we're looking at people partners products places all these things that actually everything that we do has an impact on one of them. And so if there's a detrimental impact on one one element, then we have to really, really question why we're going to do it in the first place. So because sometimes do something new, we have to sacrifice something um, that's working. So yeah, so that's a big question. Yeah, I can't actually uh, agree any more than that. Actually, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? So if your audience is everyone, then your audience is effectively no one. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> really going down to that level of, and some people, um, and I certainly did, you know, in my younger days, I was thinking, oh, you know, just cater for everyone. But, but that's actually absolutely the wrong thing to do because the more you expand, actually, the more that you're competing, the more that you're diluting your, uh, what, what you, you can be known for. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's cool. Um, so I'd love to talk about Academy XI a bit more, but before we do, can you share to us a bit about Velvet Onion? Yeah. Uh, which was your, your firstborn, I guess, <laughs> before yeah. Academy XI. Um, for those that don't know about it, what is Velvet Onion and why did you create it? Yeah, so Velvet Onion was the start of everything. This is years ago I set it up um, as an agency, which um, the focus was on UX design. Um, yeah, it, it was a full service agency at that point. Um, and uh, part of what I wanted to do when I set that up was also teach. So I actually started teaching on Saturdays. I set up a room in a space that I leased in Surrey Hills in Sydney, and um, and on Saturdays I was doing UX courses while I was running the agency a week. Um, and what happened at a certain point was that they both started to grow um, in a nice way, in a really nice, gentle way, but um, but there was a uh, this idea that I had about having integrated agency in school was nice as a notion. Um, the reality was that it, they were different, very, very different types of businesses and the same space wasn't going to suit both. So I made a call and um, in, oh, it was perhaps about a year and a half ago, um, I found a place in Surrey Hills, leased it and then um, split the agency from the school. So the agency um, was there, school was over here. I met Ben, who's my co-founder who I mentioned before. Um, so he and I rebranded and created Academy XI. Um, which we launched in uh, January last year. So um, in the background, Velvet Onion was still going and it was going really well. So it started to grow and um, it went from being, oh, you know, from me um, and then over time getting some freelancers. The grids were an agency of about 12 people and getting a really good reputation for doing some good uh, UI, UX work, some service design work as well. And 
there was a certain point where, uh, for me, it became a bit too much. Um, so I made a choice to focus 100% on Academy Excite. And in the process, I made uh, inherited some um, what were partners and directors, which was um, a bit rushed from in, in all honesty. So I did it quite quickly. And um, I didn't really uh, spend enough time understanding why I wanted to do it and what's the best way for me to just focus on the academy. So it tanked. And it's still kind of floating in the background. And um, in all honesty, I've got to decide what it is I'm going to do with it because um, I re-inherited the company um, and it wasn't in the state. So it certainly wasn't in the state um, where I left it, which was quite vibrant and um, quite profitable. So I inherited uh, something that was um, less than mm. functioning. If uh, I'm being less than, I'm trying not to be brutal, but it was, um, I re-inherited the mess and to the point where it's actually, it's kind of trading in the background now, but not not in the way that it used to. So it doesn't have its own space. Um, I've kind of reimagined it as a uh, more as a talent incubator. So for students who've come through some of the courses, if they want to build their portfolio in a in a way that facilitates um, mentors can get involved, and it's a paid experience. So we've got a, a project kicking off soon in there just to trial the the model to see whether it does work or not. Mm. Um, so because I've met a lot of mentors in Melbourne recently, who people who want to get involved and, and help students and then obviously we have a lot of students who want to build their portfolio so this was an interesting uh, model and it hasn't been proven yet uh, to see whether we could create a, a paid environment where mentors and students get paid or former students get paid to um so it satisfies mentors in terms of them wanting to do good from a mentorship perspective it satisfies students needing to build a portfolio in a way that they don't have to go to to do unpaid work because um, I, I do object to that. And um, it also gives uh, clients, and this is all theory right now, an opportunity to bring a paid project in and um, do a bit of a test drive with some students before they hire them. So as a notional thing, everyone I've spoken with loves it. I think it's a great idea. Um, I'm yet to actually test to see whether the, uh, the concept does work. And my gut feeling is that it will work, but it's just a matter, again, this is comes back to the question you asked before around um, around company focus and how much focus can I give it again um, without, is there going to be a detriment to what I'm doing, which is building you know, Academy XI. So, so there's big questions around that. So big personal questions that I've got to go through. And um, and I just want to see the model. And I may may get some people in to take over for, for me. I'm not sure yet. So, or it becomes an XI uh, product. So, so it seems like I can clear some of the debts if um, – I may well bring it into the XI family and it becomes um, one of those value adds that we we have for our students. Yeah, I uh, I love this because, uh, you know, this is a topic that's very dear to my heart, <laughs> no. trying to help emerging designers um, because, you know what, Shabelle, I was one of them. I, you know, I was one of them and, uh, yeah. you know, I created Giant Thinkers, not just this podcast, but the writing and the books and the the online courses and all this, because I was trying to address uh, the problem, which was the chicken and the egg thing, right? So you need experience to get a job. You need a job to get experience. Yeah. And then by the time you, you finish uh, your, you know, your college, your university, or whatever your course you did, uh, you're left with the same portfolio as everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there, there's so many other intricacies that hadn't been 
I guess, um, taught or, or exposed to, um, from the attitude, the, the cultural background, the, the, uh, how to even craft an email to a potential employer, you know, so many things. Um, and then there's also, of course, just the, the exposure itself. And I love what you've written on your website on Velvet Onion. Um, you've written, if I may just uh, recite this, you've written, Effort. the industry needs more designers. Mentors want to mentor. Hear, hear to that. Um, recently finished <laughs> design students need experience, yet the industry is competing for already established talent. Um, and you're potentially investigating a model here where students gain paid experience, mentors earn an incentive to nurture new talent, and clients achieve low-cost solutions and a low-risk way to test drive talent before you hire. Mate, that is brilliant. And I honestly commend you for uh, looking into this. Um, and, uh, I'll certainly be a huge supporter of, of, of anything that comes out of this because I think, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really needed in the, in the marketplace. Thank you. Now let's dive into, um, I've got lots of questions for you, but I know, uh, we're, we're limited on time. Um, so, okay, I'll pick this one either. The slide, slide share presentation you released, uh, not so long ago, uh, the future of everything it's called. (laughs) Yeah. That's been viewed now. Around 320,000 times. Yeah, it's pretty insane, huh, for four months. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it got slide share of the day. Like, I think it was up there for slide share of the day for about a month, um, which was amazing. Um, that was a big talk, that one. It was, mm, it was long, but, mate, it was great to go through. I will link it in the blog post for everyone. Um, it's it's very powerful. What What truths do you think it's triggered in people for it to go somewhat viral? Yeah, it's an interesting thing because the way um, I thought about this uh, when I was writing it last year, um, as a society, as generally as a world, we, we're on the brink of either absolute chaos and absolute destruction or um, using technology and our humanness to be able to solve problems. Um, and it, it's just really, um, it's an interesting thing because the way it was structured was like, here's, here's a picture of where we're at right now. But everything, that there's always a degree of hope. And so every section in there, it was discussion of what is our current reality. And then when we look at the section was, you know, for every section has, but there is hope. And I honestly believe that there is hope. Like if we do things right, if we ask the right questions, use the right technology, have the right conversations, we can actually solve so many problems in the world. Um, and the thing is that some people are asking the questions, but then there's a whole lot of people who are asking the questions but don't have necessarily have the um, – the ability, or they don't believe they have the ability to do something. So it's a real urge. Part of it is um, here's reality, here's what we can do, but part of it is a real call to arms as well. You know, it is comes back down to our excise stamp, is that um, we do have a personal responsibility to stand up for something, anything, but stand up for something that we believe in. And if we believe something is wrong, um, you know, there are so many ways in which we can involve ourselves in the world to actually start fixing stuff. Mm. So that was the big message is that um, here's reality, here's some hope, and what are we going to do about it? So in itself, I remember when I presented it in Sydney in January, um, it was the Q&A must have gone for about an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> Jeez. And funny, I was at an event last night um, in Melbourne. Uh, I was talking on a panel, um, and a guy came up to me. He was in the audience in the Sydney panel, and he was telling his girlfriend about it just the day before. And it really reminded me a lot of uh, why I did it and also the power of uh, conversation and the power of community in there because 
think we had about 120, 130 people in uh, the presentation. Um, and that, that wasn't the first time I presented it, but uh, that was an extended version of what I had done. Wow. And um, it was really powerful, powerful to um, see people's concerns and also um, powerful to see people asking questions again. And that's the whole thing. And one person asked me, what's the difference between now and, say, the 60s when some of these topics were discussed in the 60s? And my whole take on it was that things are really urgent now. It's like in the 60s, it was all quite distant and the impacts of what we were doing were quite distant from a time perspective. And now a lot of things that we're doing or not doing, I'll use climate change as a uh, one that is probably the most obvious, is if we don't do things, the impact is, is we're talking catastrophe. And there's no question of it. You know, politicians can deny it. They'll do nothing about it. We'll have our own government investing in coal rather than investing in solar. Um, it's dire. Like if we don't do things now, um, we are at such risk. And that's the difference between now and the 60s when there was a lot of protesting in the 60s. Um, it's the, the interesting bit is um, the urgency and the thing that we have to make decisions now. We can't wait. And certainly politicians aren't going to do it because we've seen that all around the world. Our politicians don't really... Um, make these decisions. So it's, it comes back down to um, how active can we be and how vocal can we become and how annoying can we become to hmm. our politicians. So, yes. Yeah. Do check it out, uh, listeners. It's uh, the future of everything. Google that uh, with Academy XI. It'll pop up on, on the search there. It's highly recommended. Uh, now, Shabelle, what newly emerging disciplines are you foreseeing in the next five to 10 years? Oh, yeah, for us, it's like really um, service design is one. I mean, UX, there's no question that UX is still growing year on year. Um, service design, uh, VR and AR, what we call, call them mixed realities. So the designing for um, these new mediums, um, some people are calling it the last frontier, which is, I feel, a bit dramatic. But, um, <laughs> but all in all, like VR and AR, there's no question that those two disciplines um, are going to be the next wave of four designers in any case. Um, anyone who uh, is looking for ways in which to go, they, they've really got to think of in terms of services, products, and new environments being uh, mixed realities. Um, and, yeah, when you look at what happened with the Pokemon Go phenomena, mm. um, it was pretty fascinating to see that in a short space of time, uh, it became this, this thing that everybody knew about and most people had either tried or are still playing with. And the interesting bit wasn't so much the game. It was uh, looking at, when you zoom out, um, what's interesting now is that we've got devices that are capable. We've got contexts that have changed in terms of mobility. Um, we've got processing speeds that are ridiculous, and we've got network speeds that we're moving soon into 5G. So all of this stuff, and, and the biggest thing was is people's appetite for new experiences. So when I start to look at the big picture of everything and look at this zoomed-out view, um, we're in trouble in terms of designers is that, if designers are struggling to get work now, stop, like, you know, stop, yes, print design will still be around. I, I still believe that paper has um, relevance. But where the shortages for designers are going to be are still in UX and service design, VR and AR design. And there's no question, like there's absolutely no question that when we start to look at the clustering, there's already a shortage of talent in design, in digital, in the digital realm anyway. Um, and it's going to become chronic. In the next couple of years, what problems that we're facing now in terms of not having enough talent um, is going to become chronic in the next couple of years, and there's, there's no question of it. As soon as as soon as VR and AR devices um, become more mainstream and more affordable, 
um, the demand for for those sort of skills in in VR AR is going to become chronic. And what will happen is that people who are experiencing UX and service design, those skills are hugely applicable to VR and AR. So what you'll see is um, a vacuum of people moving into into these new realities, um, leaving this even bigger gap in skills in UX and service design. So so it's kind of like, you know, I say this all the time, but I'm living in this state of excitement and terror (laughs) all the time because there's just not enough talent um, around. And everyone knows that we've gone away, like it's hard to sell products anymore. Um, but experience matters. People are buying experiences these days. So anything to do with, with the human experience is where we should be moving towards. Mm. That's where the demand will be. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, Shabelle. And it's funny when I look at uh, what I've been working on in terms of projects, whether it's um, my personal projects, personal clients, or uh, being uh, you know an extra resource for other companies and agencies. Um, I've only been doing uh, service design and UX design for the last two to three years. Mm. Um, and, uh, when I get Q and a myself in, you know, I just came back from another USA tour. Um, question I get is, you know, where do I see the future jobs for designers? And it's immediate. I immediately say service design and user experience design. And a lot of them, um, haven't even heard or know what that is. And, um, so the, the chronic problems are coming. I agree. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and it's great that, uh, you know, you're using, uh, and have created Academy XI to almost bridge that gap, right. To, to fill that, yeah. fill that need. So, um, it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's good that we pointed this out rather. And, um, and it's important for, for listeners to hear it, um, and not be scared about it, but get excited about it too. Yeah, absolutely. Embrace it. It's like, you know, because change is happening. There's no question. So, um, so it's about embracing that and using whatever skills, because a lot of these emerging skills do require that you have some skills. So, so the transference of what you're doing anyway is, um, pretty much every skill is applicable. That's right. But really, when you start to think about what design means these days, people's past skills are relevant. It's not about discarding what you've done in the past. That building upon it. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, you're talking to to someone that finished uh, graphic design, formerly trained graphic designer in 2004. Oh wow! And 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 now I'm I, like I said, I'm I'm doing more of the UX and and service design approaches, and uh, it it is about building upon, and that's how we've got to look at it. We're expanding on no matter what you put before the word designer, whether it's product designer, industrial designer, digital designer, um, you know, graphic designer, it's actually all quite necessary as a collaborative effort to design and experience. And, mm. and that's why, you know, you got teams like, you know, from your IDO to, um, you know, uh, an agency that I absolutely adore and love called Meld Studios, um, in Sydney and Melbourne. And, and, you know, they've yeah. got a mix of different, um, different expertise levels and, um, there's so much power in that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They're great agencies mentioned as well. I'd like to tap on VR real quick, uh, briefly. How are you seeing it being used well right now? Mm. So right now, it's, it's interesting. There's a whole lot of um, micro experiences that we're seeing. Um, some of the gaming is still doing quite a good job of it. And starting to see, like I haven't played with some of these um, applications yet, but I was reading an article today on uh, pain management in VR and how um, now it's proven that VR or mixed realities um, as a pain uh, management technique is twice as effective as something like morphine. Hmm. 
um, which is really, really fascinating. So, so me, like right now, in terms of um, what we're seeing from an experiential perspective, gaming, and it's, it's a natural thing that happens with technology, gaming is always the, at the forefront of, of new technologies. Um, when we're starting to see what the applications are, um, seeing some really interesting training things coming out of some of the engineering firms, like we're doing some training with um, a global engineering company now, and they're developing some interesting stuff around training. So that's a really interesting thing around there. But when you start to look at things like pain management, sleep management, um, it's a really interesting uh, change in what, what's about to happen. Yeah, love it. And uh, realistically, uh, how accessible do you think it'll be for most of us um, over the next couple of years? It's happening. Like you're starting to see. But what, what we're waiting to see is what happens when um, all these new devices hit the market. Like Apple, there's no question they've been playing in the space for a while. Um, experimenting in the space and they haven't released anything yet. Um, so once all these companies start to release their products, um, it's going to create a wave of competition. Like already Microsoft has, has dropped um, the price of their HoloLens. And um, Vive, you know, when you look at HTC Vive, it's an interesting one. Um, they haven't really dropped their prices yet, but they're going to have to at some point. Because um, right now, like the cost of setting up a computer and having the VR equipment is, is quite prohibitive. You need a good $4,000 to set up an experience at home. So once those prices drop to about $1,000 mark, you'll start to see that everything will change. Love it. A couple more questions for you, Charbel. Uh, where do you feel UX design is heading? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. So um, what we're starting to see is that it's um, UX as a discipline itself is still really focused on digital products. Um, and when I say digital products, they're apps, websites, um, you know, any sort of software that people use. Um, we've seen some interesting things around uh, spatial design. So this is where UX and service design starts to cross over a little bit. Um, and when we start to think about these new mediums, um, things like uh, virtual reality and and mixed reality. Um, and again, when we start to think about UX, it's not just about the product, but it's about the context in which the product is being experienced. Um, what we're going to start to see is this move from, um, from just doing these discrete interfaces to uh, completely immersive experiences. So the UX of a virtual reality experience is so much different from an app experience, say, on your mobile phone. So we've got to start thinking terms of the physicality of the experience so so right now we've got um it's a pretty um a direct relationship between the product which is say your mobile phone and and my experience and my context so so as soon as my context has shifted and i've moved into this new realm this new uh, virtual reality realm um i've got to start thinking in terms of motion sickness um navigation how do we actually navigate through a vr experience um what's the onboarding experience like, what's the offboarding, which is something that really got to consider from from a VR and AR perspective. So it's really um, less about forms and functions and what happens when we actually don't have an interface and how do we how do we create experiences when there are no real interfaces to interact with? Because right now that's what UX does. It's it's all the sensors as well, isn't it? It's all the sensors yeah, from totally. you know you got to even consider temperature and and all that. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So when you start to see things like subpack and Tesla suits, um, these are all the things that um, enhance the VR experience. So we've got the headset on. Um, I can wear a subpack, which gives me vibrations and pulses. But then there's this thing called the Tesla suit, which is a different company from the car, but 
it can simulate temperature and motion. So when you start to think about what um, the physicality of the experience is, it starts to get really complicated um, and there are a whole lot more considerations that you have to take into account when you're designing a VR experience. Love it, love it. And we are, we are going to uh, wind down with a couple more questions here. Uh, this one I asked most of my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to Junior Shabel Zeta, yeah. perhaps, uh, you know, the, the young, young kid finishing high school, what would you tell him? Oh, I would tell him, don't be scared. But it's just like, it, it's don't hold back. That's the big, it's not about being scared, but don't hold back mm. uh, because every, every experience counts. And that, that's part of the thing that I've been able to reflect on in the last couple of years is looking at um, all my experiences over the years and all the attempts at businesses and yeah, most of them have been spectacular fails um, and actually appreciating the failures for what lesson I got from them. So everything is an experience and do not hold back. That's the whole thing. It's about throwing myself in 100%. Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? perhaps that person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? Wow, there are so many. So I've got um, Giselle, who's my coach. She's my uh, business and personal development coach, one of my closest friends as well. Um, and Ben, who's my co-founder business partner. We, uh, When we first connected, the discussions that we were having about what we felt the impact of education could be and should be and what we wanted it to be were pretty epic discussions. And that, that really triggered um, a whole lot of events that let us here right now. So, so I mean, that, that's kind of diminishing a whole lot of my other um, influences in life, some very, very close uh, people in my life who have um, been incredible mm. influences, mostly in terms of being able to uncover uh, the real me and what my real motivations are. So really, I mean, the, the first two, the two that I'm in frequent contact with are Giselle and Ben. Superb, mate. Yeah. Uh, now, what's next for you and everything you're involved in for this year and beyond? Yeah, so now it's about growth um, for Academy XI and um, the focus really is on how, um, what's our reach. So we're looking at, um, so we're in the midst of raising uh, money at the moment. Hopefully, we'll have a great positive outcome soon in the next few days. And we're expanding not just in locations, but looking at an online platform and um, and looking at what can we do from a, a VR platform as well in terms of supplementing our current training. So, so really it is about growth and then activating some of our social enterprise programs. That's some of the stuff that we're pretty excited about. What, what's the social impact that we can have um, and what are the programs that we can put in place? Because we've already got something that we've kind of started on um, and we, we're doing, we're working on it, but it's really, that's the next stage is like, Here's the education model and here's the social impact model. And they're all tied. You know, education is the key through all of them. So, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty exciting uh, time right now. Terrifying. Exciting. Beautiful, mate. I love it. Um, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Yeah, just um, you can find me um, through Academy XI, so Charbel at academyxi.com. Um, I'm on uh, Facebook. It's easy to find me. On LinkedIn, it's easy to find me. Um, Twitter. Um, I don't use Twitter that frequently anymore, but but really, it's just like those channels. Like it, it's pretty easy to find my details. Just do a search on me, and um, uh, I probably should hide some of my private details, but I don't. <laughs> you've, I was going to say, uh, uh, bunker down. You've just you've just said your email, so uh, <laughs> there's going to be yeah. lots of people, uh, no doubt, wanting to reach you. Just be patient. I eventually get the emails, <laughs> but I'm not always straight away. 
So. Yeah, for sure. Good disclaimer there. Um, for sure, this has been uh, hugely valuable um, for everyone. Uh, me, certainly, I've, I've gotten so much out of this. And um, Charbel, thank you so much for your time, mate. Um, I cannot wait to see everything uh, unfold for you and Ben and everyone you're involved in and Academy XI and, and you know Velvet Onion and, and who knows what else. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been great. Great um, speaking with you and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Feel free to share this episode with a friend or a loved one if you think it'd benefit them. Giantthinkers.com will take them right to it. Now a little teaser for our next guest. He is a coach who specializes in deep listening. He's helped many individuals to massive corporations from Google to Microsoft to Universal. His peers have even compared him to Yoda because he asks powerful and transformational questions that help get to the core of progress. Stay tuned for that one. Before you race off, a quick reminder to check out Grand Rapids-based creative agency, Carbon Stories. If you need any video work or photography, these are the guys I use. To check out their work or to reach out to them, head to carbonstories.us. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on Snapchat or Instagram via my handle, The Giant Thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Charbel, who said, Personal responsibility is everything. We can complain about the world, but what are we going to do about changing it? 